Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't do magic, Morty. I do science. One takes brains, the other takes dark eyeliner. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a man's attitude, a man's attitude goes some ways, the way his life will be. Is that something that you might agree with? I do. I, I feel like uh, if everybody would just read The Secret, they would realize that this is the key to life's mystery. Actually, I'm fucking around, but that is true. That's the truest part of this movie. You know, have a good yeah, attitude. Yeah, we're going to get to... That's interesting. Um, although now I'm thinking maybe you answered that because you thought I wanted to hear it and not because you truly believe it to be right. I, I, tr- but, <laughs> I try. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. <laughs> joining us is um, the University of Toronto psychologist and David Lynch biographer, Yoel Inbar. As hey, guys. Professor it's of Semiotics. <laughs> Endowed share semiotics. So today we were going to discuss Mulholland Drive and do a real kind of deep dive on the philosophical and psychological themes behind it. But instead, we're going to just devote the whole episode to a point by point breakdown of the Google memo. Right? <laughs> yeah, I have uh, 12 articles in the bibliography show notes. Yoel, do you have a lot of takes? Oh, the internet definitely needs another take on the Google memo. (laughs) We're like woefully short of takes. Yeah. It's yeah. No, actually, I I couldn't think of anything that's the opposite of what I want to (laughs) do. Like Mulholland Drive is a movie I love and I I I I'm so glad one of our Patreon supporters recommended mended that we do an episode on it i've been wanting to do that for a while and And you thought that i wouldn't be up for it is that right maybe i had communicated something like that before i I think you communicated something like something well just sort of what are we going to talk about from a like right you thought it was a great movie but what are we going to talk about philosophically and it's a valid point yeah yeah Yeah. and you you all sort of asked a similar question and i'm not entirely convinced about that anyway but i don't care i think that sometimes this podcast is just therapy to talk about something that's not currently not the google memo (laughs) google memo campus politics (laughs) so that's what we're gonna do we're gonna go deep into it i think there are some actually fairly deep philosophical and psychological themes although i don't think they're obvious and it took me like really sitting down and trying to write you know when i was writing notes to try to figure out what i thought the the 
themes of this movie really were. So anyway, I have I have some ideas on that. We'll get to those um, shortly. First thing we're going to do is just give a very brief summary, which is exceptionally <laughs> hard to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can I ask before we get into the brief summary? Um, yeah. So uh, you all and I both rewatched the movie i had seen it once before i watched it a second time with yoel and and i kind of uh tried to watch it some of it at least a third time but i was curious how many when's the first time you saw it tamler and how many times have you watched it first time i saw it was soon after it came out um although i didn't see it in a theater so it was probably right when it came out on video and it was at a time when I wasn't a huge David Lynch fan. I'm now like obsessed with David Lynch because of the new <laughs> Twin Peaks. But um, at the time, I you know I liked Twin Peaks. I liked Blue Velvet a lot, but just wasn't a huge. Then thought some of his movies were weird for the sake of being weird, and then watched this movie and was blown away by it on multiple levels. In in terms of understanding it, and I do think it's a movie that's that is not in any sense something that's impossible to understand. Like it fits together perfectly. But I I I don't know when I would have come to the conclusion. My my wife Jen is kind of although she's not as much of a Lynch fan as I am. She's she's a Lynch savant. And she sort of just <laughs> figures out what's going on in a in a David Lynch movie in ways that are just mind-boggling to me. And she, I, I mean, we're not going to, we'll get into this in a second, but she just, as we were watching it the first time, just sort of said the thing that you need to say for the movie to start making sense about, you know, like three quarters of the way through. That and then once she said it, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know. Right. But so that's my history with it. I've probably watched it at least ten times. I've watched it. Eliza has watched it twice already because oh, wow. we watched it earlier, and then we just watched it again last night. Sex, nothing like sex and violence for little kids. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's a couple of scenes. Yeah, there are long. Yeah, there's. Um, uh, so I watched it the first time when it came out on video. I think. Um, and I, I watched it with my then wife, my ex, and I found it to be super confusing. Um, and then I didn't watch it until I rewatched it with y'all. Um, but I read all about it after I watched it. So I didn't have the experience of having anybody tell me sort of <clears throat> this, what, like a, a, a sensical interpretation of what was going on while I was watching it or before I watched it. Um, so, so it made so much more sense the second time. Uh, yeah. Know. What about you, Yoel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I watched it a few times without having any sort of explanation. And and I didn't have somebody around as smart as your wife to tell me what was happening. So I was confused by it just consistently, like the first few times. And then uh, I read an explanation of it. And then I forgot most of it. And <laughs> David and I actually had this debate about like whether we should reread the explanation to refresh ourselves on like, you know, what was supposed to be happening or, or not. And yeah. we ended up deciding to do that. That's something that we might talk about, like, you know, whether that's a good strategy or not. Um, but then having the explanation, I felt like it was, like you said, it fits together really well. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. 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 See this movie before, like, I, I, I don't want people to listen to this before they've seen the movie. No, because it won't make sense. Yeah, there's really like any sense. very little of value in the conversation if you 
haven't seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just be totally Unless you really, really like our fucked up voices. Whether there's value yeah. in it if you have seen the movie is an open question. But <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a mess. It's necessary but not sufficient. <laughs> yep. So I don't think we're going to have much disagreement when we get to what we think is really going on. It sounds like we've, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of great written pieces about it. They diverge in some ways and there's some crazy theories out there but i have a crazy i have a crazy theory that i don't think i've seen so i'm uh, i'll save it for the end should we get to the summary and yeah then, let's, let's do a synopsis this is going to be really brief because i think what we really want to do is talk about what really happened and then we can go into detail on some of the scenes but here's what i cobbled together from the internet a beautiful woman riding in a limousine along Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles is targeted by a would-be shooter, but before he can pull the trigger, she is injured when her limo is hit by another car. The woman stumbles from the wreck with a head wound and in time makes her way into an apartment with no idea of where or who she is. As it turns out, the apartment is home to an elderly woman who is out of town and is allowing her niece, Betty, Naomi, who's played by Naomi Watts, who's just unbelievably fantastic in this movie, uh, allowing her niece, Betty, to stay there. Betty is a small-town girl from Canada who wants to be an actress, and her aunt was able to arrange an audition with a film director for her. Betty befriends the injured woman, the one from the limousine, who begins calling herself Rita after seeing a poster of Rita Hayworth, while Betty's audition impresses a casting agent and she catches the eye of a hotshot director, Adam Kesher. Kesher's producers and money men insist that, with no small vehemence, this says, that he instead cast a woman named Camilla Rhodes. As Rita attempts to put the pieces of her life back together, she pulls the name of Diane Selwyn from her memory. Rita thinks it could be her real name, but when she and Betty find a listing for Diane Selwyn and visit her apartment, they discover the latest victim of a mysterious killer. They then go to a place called Club Silencio, and then there's a major shift in the movie, and you have the same actors, but they're all playing different people. Rita, the actress playing Rita, Laura Herring, is now Camilla Rhodes, a successful film actress engaged to Adam Kesher, who's actually the one constant, um, the director. Betty, uh, Naomi Watts, is Diane Selwyn, who's kind of just a struggling extra, and she seems to have some sort of relationship with Camilla, but it's unreciprocated, and... It comes to a head at this party where Camilla uh, announces an engagement to the director, Adam Kesher, and so Diane hires a hitman to kill Camilla out of revenge and then kills herself afterwards out of a feeling of guilt and also because she's having weird hallucinations. <laughs> so that's the best I can do. Cobbled <laughs> so, from various summaries on the internet. I wanted to just quickly interject that there's a weird thing that they never actually announced their engagement. <clears throat> I, like my memory fills it in as an engagement announcement. But right before they say yeah. we're going to, um, they don't say engagement and it cuts, it cuts over to, to the diner scene. Um, they just start was, laughing, right? They just start, yeah, they, they start laughing, and and I thought, but it's I think it's probably 
left hanging because the weight of whatever they're doing together is emotionally draining enough that it broke her. But it's interesting what you said about memory filling it in because I would yeah. have bet my house that they announced yeah. their engagement yeah. <laughs> against like a hundred dollars. Totally. Know? Yeah. Uh, um, good summary. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. So I wanted to say, I don't know if this is the right time to say it, but there are a few things that I'm afraid I won't get to once we start diving into the plot and structure of the film. And the first thing you already alluded to, which is Naomi Watts' performance, is just fucking incredible in this movie. She goes, she plays an actress being a bad actress, then an actress being a good actress, and then just a person um, with such ease that that audition scene where she's actually switches over into being an actress playing a good actress is just one of the most powerful scenes, I think, that I've seen. It's astounding. Yeah. And the movie doesn't work without that performance at all. Like, it right. just... It, I mean, this isn't the right analogy exactly, but, like, Brando, Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire, it's, like, really hard to see another version of it because he just... Like he just was Stanley Kowalski. That's how I feel about her. Like I can't imagine another actress doing that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It would fall apart. It wouldn't be an interesting movie. And the other thing I wanted to mention was I think we'll probably get to this, but but all of the nods to other films that Lynch puts in this movie. Um yeah. which I don't I never would have associated you know, you associate Tarantino with being a, a movie lover somebody who is constantly giving nods to other cinema. And I associated David Lynch with being original in, in the sense that, that he wouldn't mimic other movies. It's, it's just sort of, you, it feels so lynchy that it doesn't feel like any other movie. But this movie is just like a half homage and half sort of eye-winking criticism of tropes. I think of Lynch as someone who doesn't, reference specific movies but right. who references movie periods and he yeah. seems particularly obsessed with like the 40s and 50s so there's always a kind of a noirish element but also that kind of 50s almost bright musical bright colors i don't know like gentlemen prefer blondes <laughs> right 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 yeah. uh, feel to them but it's never the actual movie except in this except here where i i do feel like there's actual movies or actual directors getting referenced a lot right yeah so i know what is he referencing i'm curious what uh, you guys think so i found i found a lot of uh pulp fictiony um like the With woman the hitting man. shot in the ass. Yeah, um, that whole sequence. Yeah, yeah. and it's very it's Tarantino. All, very Tarantino in that sort of could be anywhere in Los Angeles feel of like the shitty buildings and the that crappy outdoor scenes. Like you're, it, it really could be anywhere in the greater Los Angeles area. And then and then a little Coen Brothers esque um, with the the plot gone awry. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like a, a sort of simple plot that just gets out of control <laughs> right. and ends up in, in, in tragedy. Right. Yeah, there's also a fairly obvious Vertigo reference. Yeah, absolutely. Right uh, before the they go to Club yep. Silencio. Yeah. Yep. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, is, absolutely. I don't know. The whole movie seems like a updated version of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, Coco, Coco is very uh, Sunset Boulevard-esque. Okay, so we've talked about how confusing the movie is when you're watching it the first time. 
Yeah, a, a real yeah. quick meta comment. Yoel and I both, and Yoel can chime in about this, we both had this experience that the memory of it was so confusing. And upon, as you all mentioned, upon the second watch, it wasn't just incrementally easier to understand. Here we can talk about the content, the, the, the theory um, that is widely, I think, accepted that it is a, a movie split into a dream sequence in a, in a real quote-unquote sequence. Once you sort of accept that, the movie is is not only less confusing it is a almost a straightforward plot with yeah. lots of weird symbolism and you know dreamlike sequences but but yeah. not difficult to follow and almost yeah. like it's ob- like it, it yeah. what's amazing is how many uh, let, let's just say it let's yeah. just like so yeah. first 2 hours of the movie is a dream it is Naomi Watts's character sort of fantasy about coming to Hollywood and being a film star and meeting this woman and and then the the last 30 minutes is a reality i mean i have a lot more to say about yeah that yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that but once you go into it again with that knowledge it's like she goes to sleep right at the beginning yeah. of the movie <laughs> yeah like she like lays down and and then wakes up like at the point where she wakes up and it's reality the cowboy who we'll talk about comes in and says, Hey, pretty girl, time to wake up. Like there's so many little things like, uh, she says, I'm Betty to the woman in the courtyard, this Louise person. And the woman says, no, you're not. Right. And she calls Diane Selwyn, the character who she really is in real life. And she says, Oh, it's weird to be calling yourself. You know, yeah. like it's just, yeah. there's so many yeah. clues that it seems like a miracle that we didn't get it the first right. time. You know what I mean? Right. And the phone picks up and the answering machine says, hi, it's me. Right. <laughs> hi, it's me. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then, and, and you know, this is what I think he's such a genius at is he's, the only reason we don't get it is because we have these expectations going into, I mean, even just that it's a David Lynch movie. Like, one of the only directors who could do this is David Lynch because, you know, if Scorsese did this, it'd be like, well, this has got to be a dream, right? Because everyone's right. acting so weird. <laughs> exactly. It's like he's bought himself the credit to yeah. to make this twist, which would ot- otherwise be sort of like hackneyed in the hands of another director. Um, this is a yeah. case where it's like the it's all a dream is not a hackneyed technique. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like he cheated us by by it was being all a dream. And and it's he's one of the only directors that you wouldn't know that it's a dream because like a lot of his movies where it's not a dream, <laughs> right? People are still acting kind of weird and stylized yeah. and heightened. Yeah, and so you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. Is there any part of the movie that doesn't make sense if that's how you view it, that the last 25 minutes is the truth, is the reality? Although it's even that is, you know, is sort of time fucked, but it is the reality. Uh, uh, there's the monster behind the diner. Yeah. And why does he have the box? And why does it have the evil old people in it who are the same old people from the beginning of the movie, right? right? Yeah. Uh, the, that old the couple. Jitterbug contest. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why are they in the box? Yeah, and so here's where it's so. So here's I think one of the most interesting parts, um, which is normally I think in the hands of another director who was doing a more straightforward, uh, this is a dream, and the second part is not a dream. You would have more concrete rules, and in the rules you would be they they might actually set up a universe where even though it's dream logic you can explain it in a straightforward way that that it is still from the perspective of the dreamer 
and and Lynch doesn't do that. I think because he doesn't have to. Um, so so I think what Yoel and I were talking about what, after we saw the movie was that you there's no good reason that that there would be the diner sequence with those two men where it's unclear yeah, actually, who are those dudes. Yeah, it's unclear who they right. are. Uh, it, well, one of the men is the guy f- that she saw at the counter. The guy who's saying how he feels like that that there's the, he's so scared of this man behind the diner uh, or this face behind the diner. Um, he appears he in, is, in the real life sequence. He's in the real life right when she hires the hitman. Right when she hires the hitman. Yeah, he's right. at the he's at the counter and looking at her like uh, like the guy looks at him, um, the person she's talking to. The one so, he's talking but, to is one of the few people though that really isn't in reality, as far as I could tell. No, yeah, I didn't see that guy. Yeah, and and it's it's sort of even so even though she does see him in real life, it's weird that that they have a scene kind of entirely separate from the narrative, which is like all of the other see the you know one of the the reasons you re, that you know that it's a dream sequence is that she's. A, as you as you mentioned, Thomas, she's incorporating elements of her the real life section. Yeah, she's picking up those details, and they're making their way into the dream through like the filter of her subconscious or whatever. And um, and so you can you know you're like okay the the name of the waitress uh, was was Diane, so she uses that name. Um, no, the name of the waitress guys, was Betty. Was Betty? Sorry. Yeah. Um, and but these guys are having a full on conversation about something that has nothing to do with the plot. Right, they're not the hitmen who who might might you could argue or she's seeing sort of a bird's eye view of the plot details that are relevant to her story. These two guys are having what I take to be a meta conversation, and I think that that's important. I, I think it's, I have I have something to say about that, but I don't think we're there yet in the podcast. He does say at some point that he need like there's this face, and it gives him this terrible feeling, and he he says I I gotta get rid of this god awful feeling and to me that is you know this is where they're sitting at the same booth where she hired the hitman yeah it's this rage and resentment against camilla that's the feeling that and this is why she's hiring the hitman in hopes that it will get rid of that feeling the jealousy the rage the resentment but but she can't like she goes but you know the the guy is there, and that so was my I, idea about what it was. And the, and the diner itself is like the focal point of her guilt, right? Yeah, the the diner is central to the. It's somehow like injury. It's the nexus of this of her emotional sort of uh, like turmoil. I have a slightly different take, but but I want to like we'll talk. Let's talk more about the rest because I actually think that 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 there is a reason that Lynch keeps that scene protected from the rest of the narrative or separates it from the rest of the narrative. Cause I get what you're saying. And I think that is one of the things that, that is, is most interesting about this movie is that all of the, even though the structure I think is straightforward and makes sense, there's a bunch of stuff that is left to interpretation and, and yeah. Lynch himself, I think really doesn't, he might have an interpretation, but he doesn't, he doesn't, I, I think that he believes that whatever interpretation we give this is far more interesting <laughs> um than than whatever the director is going to tell you so i feel like he he leaves almost like these rorschach tests in the movie for you yeah, yeah. absolutely 
that's exactly the word for it. So one of the things that that Taylor, you and I read, and we'll put a link in show notes to it, is is the Hulk film critics take on Mulholland Drive, which is a brilliant, albeit all caps lock uh, essay written um, as the Hulk, <laughs> written as, the as Hulk. a film critic. Like I couldn't believe this when I saw it. <laughs> I know. And I think one of the things that he points out is that like it's unfair to just say it's nothing but drivel. I think some people really do think this about Lynch that it's like, look, he's just putting, he's just basically like you know just dumping the contents of his mind into something incoherent on the screen and and you're dumb to think that there is any true meaning i don't think that that's the case Uh, i think that there really is i don't think he would be a great filmmaker anybody would recognize him as a great filmmaker if he didn't have in his mind a story that he was trying to tell and meaning to all of the symbols that he inserts but i think that he realizes that it's far less powerful if he tells you what what his intention was and i think that's true of most great directors yeah yeah, they're just mostly less confusing. I think that that, <laughs> right. that people sort of throw their hands up in the air with Lynch and be, and they're just like, whatever. Let me just say yeah, yeah. one other thing about the reality versus the dream. Everything or the main things in reality are inverted in the dream, right? So in the dream, Camilla is totally dependent on Betty. Or not Camilla, Rita, but it's the, the right. actress Camilla. She's totally dependent on her. Their love is reciprocated. Betty, or you know, in reality, Diane is this incredible actress, and she's an incredible actress that's noticed by a top casting agent. She's totally in control. She's beautiful. She's sexy. And then in in real life, it's the other way. Diane is totally dependent on Camilla. She has no control over her career, no no control over her relationships. Um, her love is unreciprocated, her love for Camilla. And she's just like, hate masturbating just to have an or- orgasm. I actually like I actually like to think that the dream sequence is not a real dream, but just her whole masturbatory fantasy. Um, sort of like the, like you say, hate masturbating, guilt masturbating. And the moment in which, in which she has the orgasm is sort of the end of the dream sequence. That, that was the worst part to see with Eliza. Like, <laughs> it was, it's a terrible scene. It makes me like never want to masturbate again. <laughs> Wow. Powerful, powerful filmmaking by Lynch to give you that feeling. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> the end of masturbation. The end uh, of masturbation. Yeah, I know. Who, who would like think we could that, call this? <laughs> who would think that if you told me beforehand, and there's this scene where Naomi Watts is totally masturbating, that it would be an unenjoyable thing to watch? <laughs> <laughs> right. And then in the dream, right, the director, too, everything's inverted, right? Adam Kesher in the dream is uh, played, also very good, by Justin Theroux. Um, he's being played like a violin by all these unseen powers that be. They take control uh, of his movie. They take control of his finances. They're essentially toying with him. His wife is fucking uh, Miley Cyrus's dad <laughs> and, and just humiliating him, like blaming him for the fact that she's fucking, in reality, he's just a pool man. Uh, and Gene uh, Clean. <laughs> What? Gene Clean is the name of his... uh... Gene Clean, right, yeah. (laughs) But in real life, it's like everything's going great for the director. He gets the girl, which is her girl. 
he gets the house, he gets money, he gets to do, it, it seems like at least he gets to do his movie his way, that he has control over like how he wants to do the movie. And so like, and, and, and the same thing with Rita, like Rita is, is, is in the, it, she's the one that has all the control and all the power in real life, but in the dream, she doesn't even know who she is or, and is dependent on Betty just to exist, essentially. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. It's, it's very much Freudian wish fulfillment kind of a dream. Right, like a, and and it's a funny. I think a really <clears throat> one of the the things that you can do by making it a dream is have these. You, know, you have essentially a bunch of movie tropes and stereotypes, um, and and hammy acting. Like it's it's almost as if David Lynch wanted to make a really kind of n- like early noir film with a starlet and and this is his chance to do so like he you can do that in the dream like the just even her affectations um as the young hollywood starlet coming from whatever you know b- b- deep river ontario um yeah ca- uh, canadian which is a, a real town and how stoked would you be if you lived in deep river ontario <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but just and, that idea of coming out to hollywood totally. bright eyed and she's so yeah. like yeah, like she's so optimistic when she's yeah. like unpacking her bags in this beautiful house in Los Angeles that it's yeah uh, her, aunt, to her aunt, aunt Ruth uh, yeah Aunt Ruth yeah she nails the audition by the way can we talk about that scene now I like Ugh. so so the so Naomi Watts uh, character um, is is uh, is practicing for this audition right and so she's she's pra- rehearsing her lines with. Um, Sorry, the Laura Rita, Herring, Rita, 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 actress, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rita. Uh, you know, she's not she's not exactly delivering a great performance. That's more of a bonding scene between the two women. And then when she she's goes, giving a in, bad performance. She's so. giving a bad, yeah, a, a yeah. really just. And then when she goes into the audition, she has to read lines. It's it's so funny. It's like I, it's like what somebody who doesn't know about Hollywood might think about what really goes on in Hollywood is kind of the the first this all this imagined way about how Hollywood works. And one of them is like the director, the casting agent, and the lead man are there, and you're reading for the role. And it's in and that it's a scene, creepy she just, old guy that creepy like, old guy, and she completely seduces him in that role in that moment she just turns some switch on and becomes this amazing amazing actress but part of what she's doing she's like kind of making out with this old guy and it is so gross it is Ah, one of the hands down creepiest scenes you yeah yeah it really like it's skin crawling and i mean i'm gonna talk about this when we talk about themes but what's so impressive about it is everything about the scene leads you to believe that she's that this is just going to be some disgusting like hollywood just bad sad story of like just this uh uh, director who's past his time this creepy old actor just like using this as an excuse to like paw some uh, young actress and then all of a sudden they start the scene and like you say there's that click 
And and all of a sudden, now you're just, you're like invested in those characters that she's portraying, knowing yeah. that it's an audition, knowing that it's an audition within a movie. And right. then, like you said, when they when they start kissing, it's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, you're like, your emotions are just triggered in this. I mean, that's what's, that's what's so amazing about, like, truly amazing about her performance. Yeah. And I think thematically, there's something really important there but i want to we'll get to that afterwards yeah. good the gross leathery uh guy that's uh the leading man in the movie is bad enough but then also the i guess he's the producer was already kind of had his hands all over her in a way that i thought yeah. was kind of like especially because he's like this grandpa looking dude with like a sweater vest and then he like just keeps touching her yeah and so like yeah my teeth were on edge already yeah right even before she, the, she and the leathery old dude started started making out. It was really, it's again, it's like, man, I kind of want to see Naomi Watts making out with people, but but not like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I kind of want to see her <laughs> masturbating too, but not like that. Well, you get um, a little Naomi Watts. <laughs> oh, you do. Out with somebody you that, that yeah. you're happy that she's making out. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well, and the, and those yeah. are the truly like the you know the scenes where she she but she, where she's in love and emotionally fulfilled. Um, but but it is great, and I don't know, Tamo, if you're going to talk about it. But it is you you like you said, you go into it thinking that she is the powerless one, and she takes over that room, and yeah. you realize that she is the one who has everybody else completely sort of eating from from her from her hand. Right? She's the the guy is like you could just only imagine that guy is so aroused and losing himself <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> as soon as she leaves the room, it's like holy, yeah. that that was incredible. Yeah. You know, and the casting agent is taking her to the Adam Kesher movie now, where it's implied, although never explicitly stated, that the only reason that she didn't, in her dream, that she didn't get this big part is because of these weird kind of gangster under the table, and then there's the midget, like, yeah. like just these just, just yeah. unseen powers that be that won't allow her to get it. You yeah. Know? Which, and that, which I take is her again, sort of her in her paranoid dream world is it's easier. I, you know, I think this is saying something about about uh, about a lot of human nature. It's easier to imagine that the reason that things go bad for you is that there is a big conspiracy against you. And so, yeah. in her imaginings, Hollywood is run by these mysterious figures um, who are totally pulling strings. And threatening people unless, you know, when you think about it, like, why would anybody care so much that this one person be, you know, I mean, oh, right. that's another nod, though. That's a Godfather-esque nod, right? Like the horse. Yeah. Horse in the. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. um, can we talk about the scene with the, uh, I think this is the critic, the critically important scene in the whole movie. I think this whole movie is just a vessel for David Lynch to complain that he can't get good espresso anywhere in L.A. Uh, <laughs> that is the funniest scene maybe of all time. <laughs> It's yeah. so overacted, um, uh, you know, com complete tropes. But the, the so all of the the powerful interests in this movie are meeting in a room. You have some sort of Hollywood middlemen. You have the director and his agent, and then you have the higher ups who are representing the the little person who's in control of everything. And uh, see how I didn't say midget. Um, and and part of the guys, the middleman who is hosting these big wigs. They are so intimidated by the bigwigs that they that that uh, 
his, his seemingly singular focus is to make sure that the espresso that he serves this one guy meets his standards. So he's clearly like done all this research into getting the best espresso avail- available. <laughs> and the guy <laughs> takes one sip. And just the way that he spits, he, he drools he doesn't it even out. Spit on, it out. He drools <laughs> yeah. it out on his napkin. He, it, it just yeah. sort of pours out of his mouth as it as in the same manner that it went in onto a napkin uh, <laughs> in just complete it, disgust. That's that's what I think is so funny. It's like it wasn't even good enough for it to get into his mouth far enough that he could spit it out. It's yeah. just like it, right. to just it was like, too close to the opening for there to be any force behind the spit. It just had to come right back right. out. And then the guy is like sputtering. It's like I, I mean, I've I've been told by sources that that's the finest espresso in the world. Yeah, oh. he's like turning yeah, red and awesome. almost crying because. Yep. Yeah, and meanwhile, the the director. This is one of the great things where he's just has no i he has no idea what's going on. Like, yeah. what the hell is all this? Like, what are you guys doing? Uh, right, right. It's like the naive director being exposed to the to the dirty <laughs> underbelly of who truly once runs Hollywood for the first time. Should we talk about like, and then let's take a break and talk about philosophical and psychological themes but maybe before that should we talk about like i wanted to pitch like a, a mini theory about what's going on with the diner scene uh, before we get because okay this, yeah this because i don't i don't i don't know that it's about the psychological or philosophical themes i think it's more about what david lynch is intending and so here's my crazy this is my kooky theory of of what's going on your mr so, robot theory. <laughs> my mr robot uh, theory I, I said before that one of the things that puzzles me, that one scene is the is the one that seems out of place to me. There's a couple of things that might be going on. What, one is the boring interpretation, which which I choose to not to not endorse, even though it might be right. Which is that, um, as I think Yoel first pointed out to me, um, that this was intended yeah. to be a pilot um, for a larger TV series, and it was rejected as a pilot. So he David Lynch turned it into a movie by adding stuff to it. And it could just be that those characters were going to play an, a bigger role um, in in the TV series, and this this is a remnant. Um, so they're out of scene in the movie. I mean, they're out of place in the movie, but not necessarily in the grander. Um, I choose to reject that. Too. I choose to reject it too yeah. because I don't think he would have kept it in unless it had some deeper meaning. I choose to reject even my knowledge that it was meant to be a pilot. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's it's a boring uh, interpretation, and I and I don't think it does justice to to the movie as a standalone and his um, artistry and like, his artistry. He, he wouldn't I, do that. No, and I think you. Yeah, I think that the diner scene is as close to representing the audience as he's going to get. So it's I. So setting the stage, it's already sort of a meta film because it is, it's it's a, a bit of a of a contemplation on how Hollywood works, um, a a bit of a a contemplation on how movies work and their structure, and I think that we're completely pulled out in that diner scene, um. Because that diner scene really doesn't at all represent what's going on with the main characters, but rather represents in some ways the audience. So here, here's like a, a what, one way of thinking of it is that, in fact, the reaction of the guy who's not named, but guy number one, sort of who is who is terrified of the monster outside, um, that that 
and he talks about how he has had this dream a couple of times and he's been completely terrified at this dream. There's a sense in which, in which he might be the dreamer, actually. So he, he might actually be the one who is imagining all of the things that are going on in this movie. I don't buy I, that's that's one thing that I first thought. But but as I thought about it, I thought, well, no, like that doesn't add any. It, I don't think that adds anything. But there is a way in which he seems to represent the movie goer who is being horrified by the director who is, you know, he describes the monster as the person who's orchestrated this whole thing. And so my kooky take is that the person who has orchestrated the whole thing is David Lynch. And David Lynch has manipulated the audience into feeling emotions in, only, in a way that only David Lynch really can do. I mean, yeah. the, the whole point of a dream world is communicating raw emotion without the, without the constraints of regular storytelling. These are scene, scenes upon scenes that are tied together by a story, but they're meant to evoke a certain, a certain emotion. And there is nothing like the dread that, that I think that is a, 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 it should be a sort of a, uh, in the running for the best scene in this movie. It is when they go no, outside. Yeah, for no reason mm-hmm. yeah. at all, he is abjectly horrified at what what's going on. So much so that he faints. So we it's go terrifying. outside. It's completely terrifying. He's sweating already with dread. That homeless monster, uh, the the homeless woman, we see in the end that she has the box um, in her brown bag. Um, the box that that somehow was implicated in in the blue key. That which becomes this the blue key was just the signal that the hitman was going to give the Naomi Watts character when the murder was committed when she put out the hit on her girlfriend, and the blue key in the dream sequence becomes this sort of stylized futuristic looking key that opens some box that we don't know about, um, but that probably in real life doesn't open any box because just that question was met with laughter. It was probably just a symbol. There's nothing. Um, but in the movie, in the dream sequence, it becomes something important. There is, I, I, f- I feel like what he's saying is, you guys are the audience. I am, I am the monster who's giving you these feelings, this feeling of abject horror through my machinations by being a director. And, and here's, the, here's the craziest theory of them all. When you look into the brown bag with the blue, there's a little tab, a soda tab in that box with, with the blue box. Do you guys remember this? No. In the bag? In the mean? bag. I also thought there was like a weird little piece of there's meat. There's a weird there little piece of meat and there's a the, uh-huh. the top of a soda can. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever did ever referred to the top of a soda can as a fuck tab. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember no. have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. so we used maybe it's a West Coast. Yeah, maybe yeah, it is. Coast. We used to we used to give each yeah. other these things that like in, in in sort of you would give it to a girl or a girl would give it to a guy. If you pulled that little tab off the top of a soda can, it meant like I want to fuck you. And there is something about this interpretation and the fuck tab that's in that bag that I think is David Lynch saying, see, I fu- I'm fucking with you. I want to fuck you. I want to fuck you. <laughs> I fucked you in, mean, in, in, in numerous ways. Like, I'm fucking with your emotions, um, but, but I am the director and I can fuck with your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, think, I, I think to me that's a meaningful like, interpretation because, uh, or else I don't know why those, those characters are in the movie to begin with. It's just a, it's slapped in there uh, knowingly out of place with the rest of the plot to, to be yet another meta commentary on filmmaking that what, what David Lynch is going to give you is this sort of these, this really deep distressing emotion 
and mm. and we are the persons who are experiencing that emotion. This whole movie is a way to get you to experience. That's very interesting. And I think because it comes so early in the movie, and so we're not invested in these characters at all. And we'll Not never... at all. And you, in the first time I watched it, I was like, are we going to see them again? Like, what's... Yeah. And you just yeah. get a glimpse of one of them uh, again, but that's it. And the fact that he can make us so terrified for him yeah. And, you know, this is also like he he gives a great performance that actor um, yeah all of a sudden like you don't want him to go you, you're desperate for him not to go behind <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, yeah. the dumpster and don't go back there dummy no, it's one of the best jump scares um yeah i yeah. think i've ever seen because it's not cheap um it's 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 all in the build-up um and the monster isn't you know it's sort of scary, but it's it's just the buildup that's made it. You know, it in, turns in out some ways, be- it's like a parallel to it's like a parallel. It's like David Lynch doing the audition scene, kind of. <laughs> right. Like, I, I I can make like I can get you so emotionally invested with no context. And yeah. No, like knowing this is artifice, not even caring about these characters. I can right. through the use of music and through the use of just filmmaking and acting. I can make you terrified. I can completely fuck with you. Yeah, I think that's 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 it's, seems- it's a Hitchcockian buildup of tension. You know, Hitchcock yeah. was so good at building yeah. tension. And you're right. He does this just to, it's almost just to flex his, his talent at you. Yeah, and but yeah. you're right. I think it is thematically tied to 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 what he wants to do. By the way, right. The music in this movie is great, and it's and it's by this the same the guy who did the music. The score is the same guy who did the music for Twin Peaks, and is also doing it in the modern thing. And I just learned this morning, yeah, he's the guy that sp- spits the spits out, out no, the doesn't espresso. spit out. <laughs> yeah, it no, drools really? out. Yeah, he yeah. drools out the espresso. <laughs> do, That's awesome. It, it is. It's, I was very. That's amazing. Uh, that may put me in a good mood like today. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys watching the new Twin Peaks? I haven't yet. No. no. Is it good? It's amazing, I think. But like, I'm a little bit like so in the bag right now for it that like, I, I, it makes me ashamed that I liked Mr. Robot and like Fargo. It's like, it's that much better. Well, this is an exaggeration and I can, I'm excited for Mr. Robot season three, but like, so is David Lynch directing this? Yeah, uh, well, he and Mark Frost wrote every episode, and he has directed every single. He's directing every single episode. Oh, oh. I don't want to say anything about it, but like I could yeah, also yeah, no, see no, somebody being frustrated else. by it and not liking it. All right, should we take a break? Yeah, let's yeah, take, let's a, take break, a break, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, we'd just like to take a moment to thank everybody for, first of all, for listening. We've had, we've had, I think, I think the Robert Wright episode brought us a bunch of new listeners as well. So, so to all of you new listeners, thank you. Um, and to all of you regular old listeners and to all of you who have binge listened for 120 episodes, I don't know how you do it, but thank <laughs> don't you. <either. laughs> I don't understand I that. Certainly um, and I should say, is this, this is our, this month is our five year anniversary. Yeah. Right. Uh, so thank you to everybody for your emails, for your Facebook messages, for your tweets, and uh, for your support. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can um, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet us at verybadwizards, at Tamler, or at Pease. You can leave us a Facebook message. Um, if you would like to support us in more tangible ways to help us keep the show going for another five years, you can go to our support page, which is uh, verybadwizards.com, and then click on the support tab. Um, you can donate to us via Patreon. We really, really appreciate that. Um, that's again, I think we've said this already, but that, that makes more, more of a difference than you might think in keeping this show going for as long as it has. Um, and so yep. you can go to patreon.com slash very bad wizards, or you can just do your shopping through Amazon by clicking through our link on our website and purchase as you would anyway. Um, that's also very helpful or donate to us via PayPal. How's the Instagram going? Uh, <laughs> how's the Instagram going? <laughs> he asks his no daughter. Answer. Um, so yeah, rate thank us you on very iTunes. much for Subs- oh, rate. That's right. Rate, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. Um, it's one way that we have of getting the podcasts to be seen by more people on iTunes, which, which for better or for worse, is the number one location where. Oh, by the way, yeah, at Patreon, we are now, so one of our new supporters alerted us to the fact you couldn't search for us on Patreon. We wouldn't come up, and it wasn't available on the app either. I guess Patreon is an app. But that was because we had we had listed our podcast as having adult content, which they define as showing nudity. So uh, uh, I, took, I, no. I, I took that off. And now we we're oh, searchable, but just Dave, no more dick pics from you on the on the <laughs> site. <laughs> what else am I gonna do when I'm on Ambient? <laughs> They're not always my dick, though. To my no, credit, I rarely actually. <laughs> so now we're gonna talk about themes that the movie. Try raises. to remember, remind oh. ourselves that this is a philosophy and psychology podcast. Yeah. So mine, this isn't so much intrinsic to the movie, but it's something that came up when when David and I were talking about rewatching it, which I think is really interesting, which is, did we want to go in knowing things about the movie? Now, obviously, we had both already seen it, but it had been long enough for both of us uh, that we didn't really remember it well. And uh, I, I at least didn't really remember the kind of theory slash explanation for the movie uh, well at right. all. And, and so we were talking about, is it better to go in, you know, fresh, not, not knowing anything, um, or knowing as little as possible? Or should we, you know, read up about um, what people think the movie is about? And we ended up doing the latter in part. I mean, the reason for me partly was that uh, I kind of wanted to be able to get as much as possible from the viewing. And I knew we were going to talk about it. So I didn't want to be like, exactly. a, right, like flattering around going, what, what, what's going on? Um, so, so the question is, like, had we not had that, you know, kind of pragmatic reason, if we were just trying to maximize our enjoyment... 
what should we have done? Or say you're going to watch it with somebody who's never seen it. Should you tell them kind of the outlines of the theory first, or should you just let them watch it and experience it for themselves? Uh, now, personally, like I'm usually like completely fanatical about avoiding spoilers. So if there's a movie that I'm excited to see, I won't even watch the previews because I feel like they give too much away. I try to go in knowing almost nothing. Um, so Arrival was like that, for example. I read no reviews. I didn't watch mm. a preview um, because I, I knew I knew that there was something um, and I wanted to just experience it. I might be wrong, you know? So like, first of all, I guess it's an interesting question of like, there is, there's a lot of variability in that, right? So some people are like yeah. way on the avoid spoiler side like I am and some people are like, oh, I don't care. Um, I actually, so I usually, I usually don't care at all. Usually I'm not averse at all to reading reviews and even learning major things about a plot before going to the movie. But, but I think that I've become that way in recent years because of my experience, knowing that I, I, I don't seem to enjoy it less. So Tambo, you and I had a pretty long discussion a- after the movie. We were sitting outside vaping a little bit, you know, uh, um, in Toronto. Let's see. This is, yeah. Um, <laughs> Vaping, so here, having a local craft here was beer. The, Sorry, <laughs> you know, one question is like when I when I saw the Usual Suspects, did I enjoy it more the first time or or upon repeated viewings? And I have to say, I enjoyed it much more once I knew what to look for. And that's not definitive evidence, and it maybe enjoyment isn't even the right sort of metric to use for whether or not you should um, avoid spoilers. Maybe it's it's. It's just a uh, a different kind of experience, but I think that we're wrong to think that it taints it taints the experience. I think it often adds more value. It's just hard to know because you can only see a movie fresh once. But I also think it's a false dichotomy, given that we are able to rewatch things, so you can have both. So I agree with you guys that it's in some ways you get more out of watching it the second time yeah. once you know what's going on. But I wouldn't. That doesn't mean that I don't value the experience of watching it the first time. With a movie like that, sometimes you're going in almost like, and, and anything by David Lynch, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be rewatching this. Yeah, that's that's right. sort of the boring justification. If it's something you're only gonna watch once, I am struck by the amount of uh, confusion and discomfort that go into a first watching of a movie like yeah. this this one. And and I wonder why it is that I value the experience of not knowing. And I, I think part of it you all and I were talking about is that maybe you're giving yourself a chance to work it out on your own. Mm-hmm. And there is something satisfying, if not if not pleasurable in a low level sense, pleasurable in a more high level sense that it, that you're you're giving yourself a shot to work it out um, without having anybody told have have told you um, like the secret of the movie. So you can play detective for a bit. Yeah. But I do find that I'm, I'm more anticipating the reveals, um, nervously than I am actually paying attention to the, the film in, in, I think the way that the director intends for, I guess it's an interesting question. Like what if you could only see Mulholland drive once? Right. Yeah. I, I think I would definitely read about it. I, I, I think that, like one way of answering the question is what was what would the director want me to feel and i think that i'm closer to feeling what the director wants me to feel given some structure to a movie like Mulholland Drive 
it's also hard to get the exactly the right amount of yeah. information. And so like another thing yeah. I think that can mess up the experience of seeing a movie is just knowing that people think it's a masterpiece or knowing that people think it's mixed or it's that it that it has a third act problems or something like that. You know, so it's like that's the other thing that I don't wanna so I, I i often avoid reading up on movies or tv shows just so i don't know what people think of it and as at a that at an evaluative level so one yeah that's interesting one uh podcaster that you and i listen to often named john syracuse is one of these spoil uh sp- sort of purists about spoilers and he considers even even evaluative opinions to be a spoiler so he doesn't want to know, I don't think, like Rotten Tomatoes scores. Right. Um, and I, that's something I never really avoid. Yeah, like I, I, I'm not I, that extreme either. But that's also just to screen out bad movies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why I, right. the, I get the utility from that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, I would like to know, this is a movie that's worth your time. And that's all. Like, that's all I want to know. Because there are movies like Citizen Kane who have this combination of, like, everybody says it's a wonderful, like one of the best movies ever made. So you go into it knowing that. It's so well-respected that when I first saw it, I was sort of dreading it. It seemed like homework and then was delighted to find out that it's actually really fun to watch and just like (laughs) totally engaging. Um, But I do think that that is a stumbling block for for a a lot of people. And so that's, you know, and and, and I say this, but, you know, I've certainly talked about how amazing Mulholland Drive is and for the listeners who who are seeing it right. for the first time this weekend <laughs> we already got a couple things on Twitter where we're like what the fuck was that you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, right. I, yeah we like I'm yeah. interested to see what the listeners think yeah. about it in relation yeah, yeah, I, to this movie and I, you know what would David Lynch want I mean, who he'd knows? want us to watch it at least twice. I think. I think he'd want you to watch it multiple times. Like that is a simple. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm torn with this question because th- there's a snobbish way in which I get frustrated at people who want to know. Well, what was the box really? But but I do think that it really is important to to in for the enjoyment of this movie to not let those questions. I think the desire for analysis of what's really going on is is a major impediment to to enjoying the movie. So the the amount that people want to know what what was real, what the real interpretation is, and by real they think they mean something like what did David Lynch have in mind um is is something that I think just t- totally ruins ruins the appreciation of the film because not because I'm some postmodernist who thinks there is no truth about it. But rather because I think that the work that the director has put in has been specifically to evoke certain emotions in you. And that is the fundamental communication that's being made. And that's why I like the in this case, I really like the dreamy, <clears throat> the use of dream. Because dreams are just sort of some sort like communication of emotion. And, and there is a way in which used as a technique here, it matters little what what the black book really meant and more matters just that you know that it was somehow important uh, and magnified in her mind um who knows if there's you know the black book really was a thing or the blue key did it really open something yeah so whatever right so the when when the hitman laughs when she's like what does it open 
um, kind of along the lines of your like meta thing. Like it's almost yeah. like, don't ask that question. That's a dumb question. All right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That could be seen as, as David Lynch telling us. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Stop. Yeah, exactly. Right. It doesn't matter. On right. the other hand, you know, there's a, <laughs> okay. Yeah, he yeah. did in the DVD release like this thing that it was like 10 clues to unlocking the mystery of Mulholland Drive. And maybe this is the best argument against reading up on it before you've seen it the first time. The movie is in part about solving a mystery. They're trying to find it's it's about the mystery. The dream is about the mystery of who Rita really is, what her identity is. And they go about it in a very kind of Nancy Drewish way of like just kind yeah. of tracking down clues. I don't know the fact that he even though he doesn't this didn't seem to interest him as much in Twin Peaks and some of his other movies. He seems like he really did want us to try to put this together, you know, in the same way that the dream Diane is trying to figure out what's going on. Like, it's it's good for us to be a little disoriented when, we, when we're watching it, too. If you're watching it the first time, like, it, you might not really solve it you know and then it's like yeah then then you're gonna lose that sort of feeling of catharsis of solving the mystery you know so i mean i guess there are two levels to this movie really like in in a in another sense which is that the dream sequence presents a mystery to be solved with um uh with betty actually doing her nancy drew thing um but then you realize that well like there's really no mystery to be solved. Like it's it's her dream. She's she's right. coming up with this this whole mystery on her own. And within the within the dream, there is a desire to solve the mystery. But then when you pop back out of it, you realize, well, this was just just you know her mind imposing some sort of. Rules and actually, she that, has a desire that, not to solve it because she's the killer. Exactly. You know, exactly. So, so it's like a facade. It's it's almost like the what Freud called the manifest content of the dream, right? It's not not it's it it entertains you, but it's not really um, the important part. Um, so I find it funny that David Lynch would have done that. I haven't seen that, um, and I wonder if it's just David Lynch meta fucking with us um, by letting us play around in that in the mystery, the local mystery. Yeah, I, well, I, I see it more straightforwardly. Like, I think he did want us... I mean, it's on the DVD, so talk about something that you can rewatch, right? Like, he wants people ultimately to know the answer, uh, to solve the puzzle. And they're not... They're not... The clues are barely helpful. They're only sort of helpful once you know what what really happened. And they're barely... Like, you could see it as just another mindfuck tease. But I, I don't know. To me, that sort of signifies that this... In contrast to some of his other movies, it was important at least that you get, not that you know what the black book is or what the blue box represents or what the full thematic import of the Club Silencio or the Cowboy, not those, but just the basic thing of the first two hours yeah. are a dream, the last 30 minutes is reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and the, and there's a. It's I think it would, it's unfair to the movie to think that 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 he didn't 
try to make a, a narrative that's coherent enough for 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 us to say safely that there is there is a true interpretation of at least that. <laughs> that's why there's so many um, like obvious things. Like she yeah. goes to sleep. You're not Betty. It's co- weird to call him myself. Hi, right. it's me. Like you said, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. All right. So, actually, my theme that I wanted to discuss is related to this idea of expectation. So. And, you know, we were talking about how, like, having too high expectations can ruin the effect of just seeing seeing the work of art. To me, that is one of the things that this movie is about. And that's why Hollywood is kind of the ultimate example of you go into it, you know, if you're, if you're an actress or a screenwriter, you go into it with this illusion, this fantasy how Betty is in the in the dream, right? Like, she wants to be a great actress, but also very successful. You know, we find out that the reality is so far from her imagined ideal, right? Her fantasy of what Holly, going to Hollywood as an actress w- would be like. And I think one of the things that he's saying is you have to recognize that these things are illusions um and once you recognize that then you can do something truly beautiful or inspiring but it's the illusion that can get in the way of having that experience it's the expectation that can that can get in the way like the the audition scene the club silencio scene they they go out of their way both of them and also uh, you know, we were talking about this with the diner scene. They go out of the way to say, "Look, this is not this is not real, right?" The club silencio, like right. the guy says over and over again, mm-hmm. "This is a recording. This isn't real." And yet, still, and the audition, it's like you know, it's not real. It's a movie, and it's an audition within a movie. And yet, if you can forget that and just focus on what's happening, the the just this incredible performance or this beautiful song, this beautiful, just mournful, sad song. There's something just absolutely stunning about that. It, what keeps sort of fucking us up is thinking that it's real. And so, you know, they start crying when, they, when, when she falls down and all you hear is the voice. And that sort of yeah. busts busts the the experience just the aesthetic experience of appreciating this thing so i don't know that seemed like even though this is hollywood is the ultimate example that that can that seems like it would apply to various ways of life like uh you know academia i think people have this vision of academia where it's like intel pure intellectual (laughs) inquiry we don't have this we've been the true insights and the best research is rewarded um, but then you know really it's like a midget and in a, in a red room in, in a room with only an intercom yeah, system exactly yeah there's some villain behind exactly and a guy that spits out his espresso <laughs> deciding who you like peer reviews your article apologize to all the little people who were listening. yeah the idea that there is a little person in a room deciding which grants get funded explains so much about my experience <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian reviewer too. Reviewer yeah, too. exactly. But again, if you can just sort of get out of your mind that our profession is supposed to be a certain way, 
and just then you can find real beauty or real value in what it is that's actually there. Yeah. Well, okay. So does that tie in also to the cowboys? Uh, yes. He says about, right. And, is uh, that... He comes into that scene and he's just like, get to the point what's going on. And the cowboys like slow down. Beautiful evening. Yeah. She want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown. No problem. It's on your mind. Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Like, I think the cowboys in some way, like, if I want to see, like, a, a, a pure message that Lynch is giving us, maybe the cowboy is telling us what Lynch wants to tell us in, in a very weird and somewhat patronizing way. Adjust your attitude, recognize that certain things aren't in your control, but the other things, like he says, like the rest of the cast is up, can stay, that's up to you, but it's not up to you who gets to be, who gets to be the girl. If he can get past that, then he can make a good movie. Um, but he has to get past this idea that he has full control and that he um, is in charge. So I like this, this, now that I'm thinking about the Club Silencio moment, it seems as if these are, you know, there are these moments where David Lynch is almost directly talking to you. And that does seem to be, to me, to be one of the most, it's one of the most emotionally powerful moments of the movie. And it is, I mean, it, it's, it's a breathtaking scene. Breathtaking. And and when even though he tells you this is fake, it's a recording, shows you that it's a fake recording with the trumpet player. Um, and then the woman comes on and you lose yourself in that moment because it really does seem like she's singing it. And then she falls and the song keeps going. He's still he's telling you, look, there is nothing about this being fake and a facade and a tool for me to use to manipulate your emotions that makes it less beautiful. Right. There is, you were wrong to think that just knowing um, that this is all illusory ought to make you less, less uh, sort of appreciative of what I'm doing here. And I think that there is this, this part of him that's saying um, just, I mean, shut the fuck up and enjoy it. It's club silencio. Like, shut the fuck up and enjoy what I'm doing to you. And almost preemptively telling us, I know you're going to try really hard to to uh, impose sort of some some story that makes sense to you. But part of what I'm doing here is just trying to to communicate this beauty. And when you leave, just, just remember, you don't need, you don't need that to have enjoyed what I did here. Right. Yeah. I mean, so what you said, I think you said it perfectly, like, don't let the fact that, you know, that it's an illusion get in the way of appreciating the thing that I'm showing you right now. Right. And that's the case with the, the audition scene with the silencio scene. And um, and yet exactly like, he, he like he knows that we're going to keep fighting it. And so, like, that's why he has those, you know, David Lynch is a big practicing Buddhist. And so I think it relates to to that as well. Is 
you know, the, the Buddhist, to extent that we talked about this with Robert Wright, also think that so much of the world is an illusion, but that recognizing that shouldn't affect how you feel. And, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that club Silencio scene, I admit the first time I saw it, I was like, it's, it seemed, it felt like postmodern gibberish, I think, the first the first time. And, and I mean, there is a lynchy postmodernist's gibberish way that he has uh, other films but i think that this upon rewatching it now twice it really it really is a c- clearly communicating to me that thing it's mesmerizing um, and like and it it works both as like within the movie it kind of signals this stuff wasn't real and now we're going to move to the stuff that was right so that's kind of the most straightforward listen i'm just going to tell you right now like none of the stuff you just watched was real but then obviously right. also, I mean, you're watching a movie with actors, you know, like it's all yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's very, illusion. it's very meta in like yeah. a, in a really good yeah. way and yeah. like a not, not a condescending way. Right. Um, right. Not it's, it's him communicating what he thinks films are doing within the structure of this film. Yep. And then also a double layer of telling, of telling you within this film that this is also a dream. And there's part, part of the beauty is that he's within the movie itself and the structure of the movie He's taken what is an ugly story, right, uh, of, a, of a woman whose dreams are shattered. She never became a Hollywood starlet. She lives in a shitty apartment. She's running away from the police. She had her girlfriend murdered. She was, she was rejected. Um, and it's turning that into a layered, beautiful story. With right, He's taking the ugly, true side of life and showing you how even the, the horrible guilt that she's feeling can give you can be turned into something beautiful but you know that relates to this idea of the idealistic fantasy or illusion being what gets in the way you know her life isn't that bad she has some money from her aunt that allows her to come to los angeles she had an audition lined up she didn't get it she ends up being an extra she ends up having this relationship which she clearly is you know, emotionally attached to, but can't, but it's temporary, you know, again, the Buddhist thing, it can't, it, it can't be permanent for her, but it's only her expectation that she would be this movie star that's also does really interesting work, and she would meet this beautiful woman, and they would stay together forever instead of just remain friends after they break up. It's that that's preventing her, that that's the thing that's driving her into this rage and jealousy and angry masturbating like (laughs) she definitely over she definitely overreacted yeah well (laughs) i don't know i i mean i think that goes a little far like her uh ex is really mean to her like stay in the room and watch me make out with my boyfriend or like come to this party where i'm gonna yeah she was really mean yeah that's a that is some (laughs) fucked up shit so you Um, know one of the things i've always thought that too that she was like almost torturing her and yeah. that's yeah. why, and may, especially making out with the other actress, with uh, the woman who's Camilla Rhodes in the first two thirds. That's why she decides to, you know, at least in the movie's reality, that's why she decides to kill her is because like she can take, she can stomach her being with this director, but not also making out with another woman. Like yeah, um, yeah, and that's where the cowboy goes by. Which is why I think the mm-hmm. cowboy get is so significant. One of the things that was interesting about the Hulk review is mm-hmm. he 
and, and, and I don't know if I agree with this. I probably don't. I'm probably on your guys' side. But he seemed to think that Camilla wasn't doing anything wrong, was actually cared for Diane, was trying to help her, and was trying to just make this as easy as possible, even though, but they're broken up. Like, they're, they're not together anymore. She's still getting her roles on movies. She's still, and, and that this wasn't some, like, cruel, uh, I'm gonna, like, fuck with you and show you how much more powerful I am than you and humiliate you. It was just, like, come to this a beautiful party on Mulholland Drive and, and let's walk through this beautiful path and and let's try to stay friends. I don't... Uh, I think that's... Yeah. I, that's a little autistic. I don't buy that. I, I mean, I, I think that there is a clear case where, like, if from Camilla's perspective, I believe that if you saw the film through Camilla's eyes, um, it would be like, hey, like, we had some fun. Like, I don't know what you're going crazy about. Yeah. Right? But then from, from Diane's eyes, it's just complete... This is complete, like a a complete rejection in a way that Camilla probably never, never would have seen. She never seemed to take it seriously. I mean, she was like, "We can't do this uh, anymore." From her perspective, it was just like a fun little thing that they were doing on the side, not a not a soulmate. And, and like, even that's a much more benign explanation than that Camilla is intentionally humiliating her, which is sort of how I saw it at first. And I think we're sort of meant to see it that way because it's all through Diane's perspective at that at yeah. that point. Yeah, yeah. But if you really look at what the facts are, maybe it's her perspective that's skewed, not... So chronologically, there's the, like, the breakup um, that uh, Diane and Camilla have at Diane's apartment. Right? Is that supposed to happen... Before the party or afterwards? I think before. Is that clear? You think before. So after this woman has kicked you out of her house and been like, this isn't easy for me, it's not going to be easy for you, then you invite her to a party where you're going to announce your engagement? No. No, no way. No way you do that unintentionally. It's <laughs> well, obvious. I mean, it's obviously upset. Well, but if she's completely mis- like sort of missed the the fact that, that this woman is so head over heels in love with her, like, you know, I think that if she just thought like, hey, we're friends and we can still be, be continue being friends, I think inviting her to this party might might just be like, oh, yeah, like I, I like I do love you as a friend, like come over to this party and we'll celebrate. Yeah, I can't help but think that we see it through the uh, we see it through the emotional eyes of Diane. That's like, true, and and everything seems evil. Like it really does seem evil when that other girl comes and makes out uh, with her, almost as, she, as if she's throwing it in her face. But maybe it's just like, hey, I'm the kind of woman who's just like, I've had I've had few lovers before. I mean, remember like in her dream sequence, she's like, I've never done this before or whatever. She's super, or at least doesn't remember to have done it. She seems super innocent and that's part of her fantasy. And to see that she might, that that Diane might be yet just another sort of side thing that she had going that was never really serious is what's breaking her apart. To remember is that Diane has clearly been with another woman in the, in, in the interim between... Oh, the, uh, right, the, the unattractive apartment swapper. That lady, yeah, but who's who? I Wait, don't think in reality is an apartment swapper. They just had a relationship, and then she. Oh, really? I didn't. I I didn't. I must have missed that they were in a relationship. I thought they were just friends. It's not explicit, but like, there's no like, there's nothing in the reality to make it seem like they really swapped apartments, which is something that is not 
you wouldn't do in like a, doesn't make any sense it doesn't yeah. make any sense what does make sense is she was living with diane and then they broke up and and she's taking her stuff she's she's getting her uh, stuff she wants her stuff back so again like <laughs> yeah. from camilla's perspective wait you've already had another relationship like why can't i get married you know right uh huh I mean, it's yeah. it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never thought this of all that it was. And I don't even know if the Hulk guy even I don't think he invested much into this, but it turned on something in my brain that was like, wait a minute. You know, like, is Camilla really so cruel and sadistic here as right. I thought, you know? So is the cowboy like, is there anything about the cowboy that is deep? The cowboy seems to be to represent something and part of it might be by dint of being the kind of character that he is but is he is there any is there any deeper mystery than he's just sort of like a a boogeyman if you know she sees him and if as i think it's very plausible she makes the decision to kill camilla right when the cowboy happens to walk by at this party then i think he is the symbol of her bad choice to hire a hitman to kill camilla and you know that 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 sort of connects to you'll see me once if you do good twice if you do bad but like i said earlier i think he like if you look at that speech you're just being a smart aleck i want you to actually take a moment and listen and really focus on what i'm saying to you because it can save you you know um, right. Like I like he could you could also look at him as like a Buddhist guru right. if you like rewatch that scene. I I think I don't know why, but I want to talk about the hitman scene because <laughs> only because the two those two, those two actors, the guy playing the hitman and his friend, are <laughs> like I, I I'm sure it's intentional that they're acting like the dumbest stoners from the '90s, like L.A. scene. Yeah, but. <laughs> Was he doing anything with that scene where he k- kills the other guy and takes his black book? Like, those guys are just so douchey. I don't, I don't know what else to say other than, like, I, could, I almost, they almost, it almost took me out of the movie yeah. Yeah. how dumb they were. You if, know, you could lose that scene. I don't think it, it would do any damage to the movie. That was the one part that I felt like it felt a little dated just because of that. Yeah. Like, they're so 90s, you know, they're, and the rest of it is kind of kind of timeless. Uh, <laughs> right. It doesn't feel like really anchored in any like historical period. But that was just like just so over the top. Bill and Ted. Yeah, you know? I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure what work it does yeah. to to advance anything. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the it's in some ways the weakest scene in the movie. I get that it's like a Tarantino. I don't know if it's an if it's a friendly homage or a unfriendly right. homage, but um, if you wanted to make the case that, you know, this was something yeah. that was a holdover from the pilot and that might make more sense in the context of a, <laughs> right. you know, 12 episode <laughs> yeah. season rather than the movie, that would be the scene I right. would choose for that. Right. Yeah. So, so that makes me a little more reluctant to read too deep a meaning into any one specific thing. Like, you know, the, as much as I like your super, you know, stoner take on the, you know, the true meaning of the diner scene or whatever, it could be he shot it and he's like, well, this is awesome and I want to leave it in. And it's, yeah, you know? I, yeah. I, so I'm I'm like, I, t- I totally am sympathetic to that, that sort of interpretation. But I, I do think, 
it gets a little bit to my point before, which is like, I do think that he, he turned it into something. Yeah. Um, and kept it in and he could have been communicating either wittingly or unwittingly, uh, still something like what I said, um, by either choosing to keep it in explicitly for that reason. Um, or, or just sort of, it, it's just, you know, something that came out of his mind. And, and, you know, I do, I do think that sometimes the true interpretation may not even be obvious to the, to the artist themselves. Um, I don't want to take that too far, but I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think like you, you don't have to be fully aware of what you're doing. Right. Right. Um, that's fair. Like, yeah. and it does, it, it definitely like feels like it fits with everything else. Like kind of like thematically, I mean, in a way that almost the, like the assassin scene doesn't Does really it. work. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I agree. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. agree. I often wonder this about film directors. How, you know, I feel like there is, I was just recently, I rewatched the Godfather two. And, you know, after having read a bunch of stuff, like, you know, there's there's this overt symbolism of the oranges in The Godfather that, you know, whenever there's an orange, it's sort of an omen of death. Hmm. And and there is where like, OK, you know, Coppola probably put that in on purpose. But there are some movies and I think that's less interesting than some movies where symbolism sort of emerges and and the director might themselves not realize that they were using something as a symbol. I find it far less interesting when it's so obviously placed by the director. Yeah, I mean, um, I, but I don't know if the distinction there is whether the director is aware of it as much as whether the director is skillful about it or whether it's too overt and obvious. I, I yeah. guess. I, th- I think that when it's, when it's so overt and perhaps when it's overt, you know that it must be intentional. When it's, when it's more hidden, you're not quite sure whether it was intentional. Um, I, but it could it could very well be like I I think that it's that it's a little heavy handed in the Godfather series. I mean I love I'm not going to sit here and trash the Godfather. I love the Godfather. <laughs> but, I, but I I remember like one of the things that I probably I strongly urge people to do is to listen to the director's commentary Chan, uh, Park Chan Wook of Old Boy, um, and a, and a, it's a director's commentary that's subtitled obviously because he's doing it in Korean, but you see that this is a guy that's in full control of every shot and and every like color scheme that he's choosing yeah. and every um and these are things that i would never in a million years have noticed upon like i could see that movie 50 times and i wouldn't know why you know why there's a shade of green where he put it but he knew why he was putting the shade of green. That's and that's, but it's there's yeah. nothing overt about it. But he did know what he was doing with that, you know. Right, right, right. And maybe, maybe that's you know, I'm not an artist myself, so I don't know like the process. But uh, it is something that that came up when you all and I were watching this together, where I was looking at the way that Lynch shot the diner scene when the guy goes outside, and I just happened to be sort, you know, sort of like any any good nerdy person would do upon looking at a film like this. And I was trying to see if there was anything interesting in the graffiti that was, or that was on the wall right before he sees the, the monster, the homeless woman. Um, and I thought to myself, is David Lynch the kind of director who would have tight control over every word that was on that wall? Or is he the kind of director who found a cool spot and shot it there? 
and and there's a way in which like I would if this were a Kubrick movie or something I would think every single piece of graffiti on that wall right. was planned yeah. mm-hmm. but I don't know that Lynch Lynch seems to more be the kind of director who sort of barfs out his subconscious and sometimes you know he might have just picked that location and is fine with it but I don't I don't really know yeah. no that's interesting and Kubrick of course like I think Lynch shoots on location a lot more than Kubrick like Kubrick was just constant like he just allergic to every a, set. like because yeah. he wanted to control every aspect of the set right uh, lynch seems like a, a mood builder rather than yeah. you know the diner yeah, like there's know. there's a lot of dream logic that's in connection yeah. with the diner like when when she first discovers that she's like i just thought of something and they're in the diner when they see it's rita yeah. and betty in the diner and the waitress is diane and all this sort of inversion rita says i thought of something and then all of a sudden, they're be- they're in their house. They're walking through the door, and she's like, "What did you think of?" And, and it's just <laughs> oh, like did- you know, that's such a that's so, that's so dream logicy that you know, I mean, if you think about it, like you wouldn't just wait until they left the diner, <laughs> right. paid, yeah. drove all the way home through Los Angeles, and then ask her. But the the conversation yeah. just picks up right away. Uh, that is funny. I hadn't noticed that. It's yeah, totally. I mean, that's why people telling. That's why people communicating their dreams to me is just like one of the most aversive experiences. <laughs> where I'm like, I, you know. And then I was at my aunt and uncle's house, but then all of a sudden I was at the beach, and I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, I don't. All right. Well, did you like the movie? <laughs> eh, it's all right. It's fine. <laughs> I give it a C plus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think that that I that there's one I I it's funny that we all had the reaction to the hitman scene. It's it. it it is a it is the sore thumb of an otherwise I think almost kind of flawless cinema experience like, and it just yeah, doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah, and it goes on for a while. <laughs> yeah, it goes on for a while, and like the janitor, and yeah. he's like, wait, what? Where's this guy? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm okay saying that was the remnants of a pilot. Yeah, uh, I think in this case it's being sympathetic. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Next time we'll be talking about uh, varieties of intelligence and Dave can Whoa. get himself fired by the Google CEO. That is timely. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Thanks, Yoel. Thanks, Thanks guys. You,